Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah 7. Our text this morning is all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. We will not read that entire thing at the beginning of the message. We will just read the first three verses of chapter 7, which sets up the situation to which these two chapters together respond. There's a question asked in these first three verses, and chapters 7 and 8 are the Lord responding to that, to that question. So as you're, as you're finding your place there, let's stand. We will read Zechariah 7, verses 1 through 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Father, we pray that your, your word this morning would move us to, to worship, would move us to deeper devotion, would lead us away from mechanical ritual, that we would see the gospel and love it, Lord, and be moved to live in light of it. We pray for your help as we study this morning. We ask for it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Imagine if you hadn't heard a sermon in two years. Two years. You haven't heard the gospel in two years. What if you went a full two years without hearing anything from the word related to the gospel, followed by the gospel's call to build the body of Christ. What might you be doing right now if that was the case? You might still be doing the mechanical things of ministry, possibly, but in some ways, perhaps only in your thinking, you would have reverted to an old mindset. We need to hear the gospel frequently. That's why the Bible puts it in front of us over and over and over. The returned exiles to whom Zechariah has been sent with this message, they have gone two years without a word from the Lord. Two years that they have spent building the temple that the Lord told them to rebuild. Verse 1 tells us this, this took place in the fourth year of Darius, which is about two years after the visions that we've just finished studying in the previous six chapters. Those visions, which were intended by God to encourage the people, keep building the temple, keep building the temple, and do so in light of this, these gracious promises of the Lord. 
We've, we've put this in a, in a New Testament light by saying that the message of these visions was keep your eyes on Jesus. That is what helps you to continue to build the kingdom. Ezra tells us that it took, took about four years to rebuild the temple. So they're only about halfway done. What this means is that they've gone two years without hearing anything from the Lord. They are far enough from the beginning of the building of the temple that the natural excitement has worn off and some fatigue has probably set in and they are far enough from the completion of the temple that they can't really envision what the whole thing is going to look like. Verse 2 tells us that a delegation was sent from Bethel to entreat the favor of the Lord. To entreat the favor of the Lord. This is more literally to soften the face of God. They they, they want to be right with God. And so they ask a question. In verse 3, a question which shows that their minds have begun to stray from the message of these visions that we've just studied. They ask, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, to to abstain in this context means to fast. So this fast that they're referring to is one of four fasts that they imposed upon themselves. They were not commanded by God. They imposed these upon themselves in the exile to mourn regularly the events of the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So they're wondering, Lord, do we still need to mourn that old temple? Is that what's necessary to please you? We might even say that what they really want to know is what's necessary to please you now? Now that we're building the temple, what do you want from us? This, this is a, a reversion to an old way of thinking. See, prior to the exile, the, the, the people of God had a ritualistic bent when it came to relating to God. They did outward acts of, of worship devoid of true devotion And they did that in order to get things from God. Most of the the pre-exilic prophets chide them about this. But now, these returned exiles, they've been building, building, building. They haven't heard anything from the Lord in two years. They haven't haven't been revisiting these visions of, of a gracious future. As a result, they have reverted to their old way of relating to God. We might call this mission fatigue. When we've, when we've been doing a mission long enough, and in the midst of that mission, we are not careful and mindful about why we're doing it, it is possible to become fatigued and to begin to revert to old, bad habits. And anybody ever go on a, on a, a mission trip as, as, a, as a youth, Maybe back in your teen years, anybody? I'm the only one. Oh, okay, there's a, there's a few. All right. I saw this, this mission fatigue thing happen on every home mission trip that I went on with, with my youth group. On, on the front end of these mission trips, we were like thoroughbreds at the starting gate. Just chomp it at the bit. Let us at this mission. We're going to turn the world upside down for Christ. But about three days of sleeping on gym floors, waiting in line behind 30 other people to use one shower living in extremely close proximity to other people who don't share the same standard of hygiene, and eating church lady food, three meals a day. About three days of that, 
And the pastor's objective, the, the youth pastor's objective, isn't so much to, to lead us to storm the gates of hell as it is to keep us from killing each other. I mean, on one trip, we literally had people fighting, literally fighting. Which, you know, if you, if you think of the book of Titus, this is not the best way to commend the gospel to a watching world. I mean, we, we, had become, we had become tired and we reverted to what became natural to us. Now, I did not grow out of the danger of mission fatigue when I became an adult. I've, I've experienced it as an adult. I've experienced it as a pastor. Many of you have too. So, some of you may be experiencing it right now. This is a great mission that we've been called to, that we've been talking about over the last couple of months or so. We've been called to build the church of Christ. And so we share the gospel with the lost. And we disciple other believers. And we pursue Christ-likeness ourselves. But... If we don't return daily to the gospel, mission fatigue can set in and we revert to what, become, what is natural to us. Now, what comes naturally to us? Well, it's the same thing that came naturally to the returned exiles. As fallen sinners, we don't naturally understand grace. We want to pay for things. We do this so that God will do this. What, what do I need to stay on God's good side? What must I do? That's the natural bent of the human heart. That's why every, listen to this, every man-made religion is works-based. Because that's, that's how we think normally. We want to earn what we get for eternity. We, we, we don't really comprehend grace. When we have mission fatigue... Acts of devotion devolve into mere ritualism. We, we do the things of personal devotion and kingdom building, but not because of what God has done, but in order to get God to do things that we have somehow forgotten Christ already purchased for us. So the outward actions may look just like they did before, but our thinking is different. And this thinking, this, this I've got to work in order to get God to do things for me, this will kill our joy and it, it will endanger the mission. We go back to relating to God as judge and not as father. Now think about this question that the people have asked the Lord. Do you still want us to weep? Can there be any more mechanical, impersonal, and ritualistic act than planned weeping. Is this, is this what you want, Lord? Do you want us to keep doing this? We could paraphrase the Lord's, Lord's answer to this question in the coming verses this way. The coming verses, the coming couple of chapters, the Lord will say, I want what I've always wanted. And that is fruit that comes from a heart that loves me. The people have fallen back into the habits of their forefathers, and that is by appeasing God with ritual. Now, the word ritual, as I'll be using it this morning, is, is any merely outward act. That is, it is not the expression of an inner disposition. It's merely outward, and it's intended to garner the favor of the Lord. We need, we need an antidote to mission fatigue, because mission fatigue will lead to this ritualism that we see in the people that we have seen in ourselves. These chapters give us that antidote. The first component of it is the first point in your notes. Beware of gospel-deficient ritual. 
Beware of gospel deficient ritual. Let's begin reading in verse 4 of chapter 7. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the word, words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? The Lord answers the question not with a simple yes or no answer, which is what they might have anticipated, but he addresses a deeper issue. Why have you been fasting all these years? This whole, the 70 years of the exile. Well, it's for the same reason that you eat and drink. You do it for yourselves. You don't do it for me. You're acting like your fathers. Your fathers had this view of fasting back when everything was great in the land. Verse 7 references the former prophets. Is not this what the former prophets said? Write down Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, if you're taking notes. In particular, verses 3 through 9. Isaiah 58, 3 through 9. We don't have time to go there, but the issue there was that the people were fasting just to get stuff from God. And when they weren't getting the stuff from God, they started asking themselves, what's the point of fasting if God's not going to give us stuff in response to it? Their fasting was devoid of true devotion as evidenced by the fact, Isaiah points out, that on the same days they fasted, they were oppressing the poor and conspiring against one another and fighting. God wanted what He wanted all along. He, he wanted their hearts, not empty rituals. He's not after tears and fasting. He wants loving change and obedience. He reminds the returned exiles of this in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 through 10, he says, here's, here's what I want. Look at verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This is what the Lord wanted back before the exile. It's what He wants of the returned exiles. But then he reminds them of how their fathers responded to this back then. Look at verse 11. He said, But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. All that ritual that the fathers did it did them no good because their hearts were far from God. They, they didn't love Him. They, they thought God, the one true God, is like all the other false gods out there. And so they intentionally focused on ritual rather than devotion. But, but from the beginning, the, the people weren't called to obey in order to get grace. They were called to obey in response to grace. We see over and over, even, even right as they're coming out of Egypt, as God's giving them the Ten Commandments, He begins the Ten Commandments was, here's what I've done. I've saved you from slavery. Now, do this in response. Do this out of love for me. But what we find in the Old Testament is the people couldn't do that because they had dead hearts. And their, their unfaithfulness, 
to follow the Lord in love and obedience led to judgment, as that last sentence of verse 12 teaches. Great anger came from the Lord. Now look at verse 13. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Again, he's still reminding them, this is what happened to your fathers because they were all about ritualism. They wanted stuff, not God, and in the end they lost both God and the stuff. God cast them away, and the land that they had was made desolate. They were exiled. Now, the returned exiles, they know all this. Because Haggai preached it to them in both of his chapters. And Zechariah started this prophecy with it back in chapter 1. They know God just wants their hearts. But in the toil of the work, they are reverting back to their old way of thinking. Asking, Lord, do you still want us to weep? We still need to fast? You still want this outward thing? We tend to do the same thing. And we should think of it as a gospel deficiency. It it focuses on what we earn rather than what we've been given by grace. It's a danger when we become fatigued with the mission. We become so focused on the work itself or on the discomfort of the work that we forget why we're doing it. Our, Our human bent is to do it in order to get things from God, the, call, the gospel calls us to do the work of the kingdom because of what we've graciously received from God already. And when we, have the, when we revert to that old mindset, it will kill our joy. It will eventually endanger the work. One way of thinking this, thinking about this tendency, is that we go back to relating to God as a judge and not as a father. See, ritual tends to have as as its end appeasing a wrathful judge. Devotion may look like the same on the outside. It's, It's some of the same acts, but its end is enjoying a loving father. Not appeasing a wrathful judge, but enjoying a loving father. So there are some of us, perhaps some of us even this week, who have thought something like this, God is mad at me. I haven't been reading my Bible. God is mad at me. I haven't been serving others. God is mad at me because I haven't displayed this fruit of the Spirit in sufficient quantity. I need to do these things so that God won't be mad at me. We forget that God is not a wrathful judge toward those who are in Christ, but He is a loving Father toward those who are in Christ. He wants us to do these things, not to keep Him from being mad at us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wants us to do these things because He wants us to enjoy Him. And He's moved heaven and earth that we might have Him. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And when we do these things just to keep Him from getting mad, we misunderstand His disposition toward us. And we we miss the whole point of these acts of devotion themselves. And mission fatigue can sit in, stealing our joy and endangering the mission. We've got to beware of... Gospel, deficient, ritual, 
chapter 8, he shows us a better way. There's a better way. It's the second component of this antidote to mission fatigue. We find it in chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. 1 through 19 is the next section. And that component of the antidote is this. Pursue gospel-infused love. Pursue gospel-infused love. The vast majority of this section, chapter 8, verses 1 through 19, is God's gracious salvation on behalf of his people. And to us, it screams, don't forget the gospel. Because most of what we find in these 19 verses is is God essentially saying, here's what I'm going to do. That's, That's what he's saying to the exiles, to us on this side of the cross. He's saying, this is what I have done. And relatively little of these 19 verses is God saying, here's how you should respond. Verses 1 through 8, just straight, unadulterated grace. Look at 8.1 with me. The word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Now that language should, should be familiar to us as we've come through Zechariah. He's reminding us of the first and second visions. This is my gracious disposition toward you. This is my wrathful disposition toward the nations. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Here he's reminding us of the third and fourth visions. I I have returned. And and from this point forward, I'm going to be the glory in your midst that the people will be called the faithful city is connected to that vision of Joshua as the high priest being clothed in pure vestments. God is saying to them, I will fix the heart problem of you you people and, and I'm going to give you an alien righteousness to us on this side of the cross. He's saying, I have done this. I have given you a new heart and I have given you the righteousness of Christ. You are the faithful city. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the, cities, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Recall, recall those words of the third vision. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a city without walls. going to be many villages, he says, in that that third vision. This is an expanded Jerusalem. This is what the New Testament would tell us is the church. And in concert with the other prophets and the law, Zechariah is saying that in this thing that I'm going to do, I'm going to give you the blessings spoken of in Deuteronomy. We read about long life being a blessing of God. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of, of the remnant of this people in those days, should it be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? In other words, look, you're going to be amazed. I'm not going to be amazed because I know as Yahweh that nothing is too difficult for me. I'm going to make this happen. Now notice there are no caveats here. And thus far, there, there are no caveats at all. There's nothing like, I'm going to do this in response to something that you do first. This, this is just raw grace. 
And verses 7 and 8 are something like a recap of, of what we've just seen, just in case we didn't catch it. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. I'm going to save you. I'm going to make you faithful and righteous. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to do this. This whole thing is just a recapitulation of the message of the visions that we've already seen. He's reminding them of the visions. I'm doing this new thing among you by grace. Verse 9 is the first place that we get an indication of what the people should do in response. So we've got verses 1 through 8. Here's what I'm going to do. It's just pure grace. Then beginning in verse 9, three times, three times, he, he essentially says, here's what you should do because of grace. Here's what you should do because of grace. And even as he's saying, Here, here's what you should do, we have lengthy portions of text talking just about grace. Verses 9 through 13 is the first iteration of this, do this because of grace idea. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. And notice first we've got bookends on this section in the form of this command, let your hands be strong at the beginning of verse 9 and at the end of verse 13. Anytime we see bookends like that, we want to ask, what's in the middle? What's in the middle? Well, in the middle is nothing but reminders of God's grace. And, and not just any reminder but a paraphrase of the words they've already heard from Haggai and Zechariah. This is why there's, there's really no need to s- slow down and, and go through every word of these verses. If you want to know what these verses mean, just listen to the sermons that, that you've already heard in, in Haggai and Zechariah. He's just paraphrasing Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets that he mentions in verse 9. The, one, the, verse nine, the, one that were, the ones that were present at the founding of the temple. So he's saying, look, don't, don't forget the teaching that you have received from these guys. You who have heard about this gracious future, build in light of it. Be moved to build because of what God is graciously doing. Now, look at verse 10, verse 10, this is the second iteration of do this because of grace. I'm sorry, verse 14, verses 14 through 17, the second iteration of do this because of grace. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, 
So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Now verses 14 and 15, if you just scan over those two verses again, that's grace all over again. What the Lord is doing for the people. Verses 16 and 17 are what the people should do because of grace. Now, If you compare these verses to verses in chapter 7, verses 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, you see they're very, very close. In other words, God still wants loving obedience. But it's going to be because of grace in response to a loving father. Now, let's talk briefly about why God relates to us as father and not a judge. I I hinted at this earlier, but there's a reason that God is able to, to, to have a different disposition toward the people now as he, compared to his disposition before. And we've, we've seen why this disposition is able to change. In the visions earlier, it's because of an atoning priest-king. God's response to the people's rebellion and disbelief, as depicted in Zechariah 7, was a response of wrath, and that is his rightful response. Because God is a holy God. He, he doesn't just overlook sin. So because God is holy, and because he's a good judge, every sin ever committed must receive judgment. So we, we are all born sinners, just like the people of the Old Testament. So how can... A holy God who is perfectly just. He's a good judge. How can he show mercy to sinners? How can he show mercy to us? How does our judge become our father? Well, it is not because we do rituals. It did not work for the people of the Old Testament. It does not work for us. It's not because we fast or we read our Bibles or we pray or we offer sacrifices. None of those things can atone for sin. One person can do this and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. The, the eternal son voluntarily went to the cross where God placed upon him the guilt of our sin and poured out omnipotent wrath for those sins on Jesus. And as Jesus was dying, he said the words, it is finished. Meaning, paid in full. Jesus paid completely for the sins of his people. The father raised him three days later saying, yes, he was right when he said, it is finished. Everything is settled as, as, as it pertains to the sins of my people. Now with, with the guilt of our sin removed, we are forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of God. We repent of our sin and trust in Christ alone. We are adopted into His family. So when, when, when He shows blessings to His people, as depicted in chapter 8, He's not doing so by overlooking any sin, pretending it didn't happen. Jesus was punished on their behalf, punished on our behalf 
So that now God's disposition toward them, God's disposition toward us, is that of a father. The question at the beginning of chapter 7 is essentially, how do we pacify the judge so that he won't punish us? Do we need to keep mourning and fasting? The answer is that we, we don't do anything to pacify the judge. Jesus did that. Now God is our Father, and all of our obedience is not to garner favor and mercy, but it's a response to favor and mercy freely given to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing left to do to earn for us God's kindness. And so now in response to a loving Father for all that He's done for us in Christ, out of joy for what is ours in Him, we delight to follow and obey and love. This becomes clearer in the third iteration of do this because of grace, verses 18 and 19. Look at verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Again, we, we have God's grace and our response. God's grace, your mourning, remember fasting is, is a sign of mourning in this text. Your mourning will be returned into rejoicing. Your fasting will be turned into feasting. And for us on this side of the cross, these things have happened. Christ has come, atonement has been made, our mourning has been turned into rejoicing, our fasting has been turned into feasting. Therefore, therefore, let the appropriate gladness of a redeemed heart lead you to love, truth, and peace. And that is simply another way of saying what he's already said. Just live a life of loving obedience to me. Give loving obedience as a response to grace. Be godly and build my church. Practically, how do we pursue a a gospel-infused love. How do we do that? The main part of it, the main part of it is to major on the gracious work of God in Christ. Major on that in our thinking. Back in the presidential campaign of 1992, a, a, a new catchphrase was sprung upon the American populace. And I still hear this phrase said occasionally. James Carville who was a strategist for Bill Clinton in that campaign, he coined this phrase, it's the economy, stupid. The idea was that Bush, President Bush, had ignored the health of the economy and therefore ignored the main thing that really matters. So what, what's the key to Clinton winning the, the campaign? What's the most important thing? It's the economy, stupid. Now we might modify that catchphrase for the church. And it should be obvious, right? It's the gospel, beloved. It's the gospel, beloved. This is what really matters. Th th listen, th there's a reason 
that, that we preach and sing and pray and read and discuss amongst ourselves the gospel all the time here at Providence. It's not that we're just trying to run out the clock. And it's not, it's not a theological quirk of ours. When it comes to living the Christian life, it's the gospel, beloved. The gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to make us His and to give us Himself. This gospel is our identity. It's our reality and it's our reason for living. The, the gospel needs to be our song. It, it needs to be the lens through which we see the world, the lens through which we see God, the lens through which we see ourselves. Now this requires intentional time spent reading about, listening to, meditating on, and discussing with others the gospel. Love of God in Christ. Gospel-mindedness does not just happen. It does not just happen. It has to be pursued. Listen to this. Ritual is easier than devotion. It comes more naturally to us. It takes intentionality to be gospel-minded. So the first part of this pursuing a gospel-infused love is majoring on the gospel daily. I return to it daily in my thinking, the things that I listen to, the things that I talk about with others. Then the second part of it is consciously responding to that gospel by loving truth and peace. We love the things that he loves. We hate the things that he hates. This is what he's calling us to in these last verses we've just, we've just read. Do these things. Don't do these other things. God is simply saying, love the things that I love, hate the things that I hate, and let that hate and love cause you to live in a particular way. Let cause you to live in a way that commends the gospel to a watching world. Lose the idea that there's, that there's anything that we earn from God. Christ did that already. There's nothing left to do on that front. The gospel reminds us of that. What's left is our response. Not empty ritual, but loving obedience. There's a third component of this antidote to mission fatigue. Expect a gospel-drawn harvest. Expect a gospel-drawn harvest. Verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This brings us back to many promises of God building His church of both Jews and Gentiles. Verses 20 through 22 tell us what is going to happen. It's going to be this church built of all nations. Verse 23, Three tells us why. Many peoples outside the people of God, they're going to come and entreat the favor of the Lord. That's the same phrase, by the way, used of the delegation from Bethel back at the beginning of chapter 7. Entreat the favor of the Lord. 
They're saying essentially, these people of the nations, what must we do to be right with God? They'll come to the church asking this question. Why will they do that? For we have heard that God is among you. God uses the transforming power of the gospel among his people to draw others to himself. That's what he meant back in verse 13 of chapter 8 when he said that you will be a blessing. He meant the same thing there that he meant when he said it to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. You will be a blessing. My grace in your life and its expression in your loving obedience will attract to me others to my church. This God-glorifying privilege is our mission. God's doing this even now. The fact that we're here is evidence of it. We are part of this. As an antidote to mission fatigue, we have to pay close attention, close intentional attention to the outcome of this mission. Anticipate what God is doing and will continue to do through the work of your life and ministry. We're not just laying bricks on top of one another, metaphorically speaking. We are building the the body of Christ globally. And many times we can't see this happening, but sometimes we, we, we have to believe That it's people watching the way that we live in response to the gospel that convinces them this God is true. And he says here that this is going to happen. People are going to come and say, let us come with you. God drawing people through the lives of his people. There's eternal significance to what we're doing as we pursue Christ's likeness, as we proclaim the gospel, as we disciple others. I hear people say often, and, and and I think it, Oh, how I wish the Lord would come back. And sometimes, it's because we just want to be with Him. But other times, it's because this life has brought us to a point of great weariness. We're just fatigued in the mission. Just tired. That is a dangerous place to be if we don't consciously address it in our minds and hearts with the gospel. If we become complacent in our thinking, it is the natural thing for us to drift toward mechanical ritualism as if that's all God desires for us. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to serve in this ministry. I've got to do these things so that God will not be mad at me. The gospel fixes this got to be aware of that tendency and instead keep our minds stayed on Christ, stayed on His good news and let that be the fuel for our lives. God is saying here, look, there's, there's nothing for you to earn. Enjoy me in Christ and join me in my work. Out, out of joy for grace, build this house and envision the great outpouring of God's Spirit over all the earth in the form of this growing global church. Not just a building in Jerusalem, but a global church composed of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, worshiping God together. Grace-infused love moves us to do kingdom work to that end. We must major on the gospel. I'm going to to pray, and in a moment we will...
share a, a few moments of silent reflection on these things before closing with a final song. So let's pray. Father, it's possibly the case that some of us are here this morning out of mechanical ritual. It's what I've got to do so that you won't be mad at me. This is what I've got to do in order to get you to bless me. Father, we, we have all done this. And whether we've done it this morning or yesterday or years ago, we, we confess it to you, Father, as a failure to major on the gospel in our minds and hearts. We confess this to you. We ask for your forgiveness. And we pray now that you would work these things into our hearts and that you would help us to, to think rightly about you every day, you're, you're no longer a wrathful judge toward us, but you are our loving Father. And it is because of what you have done for us in Christ, purchasing our redemption forevermore. Lord, help us to be gospel-minded people and let your gospel have its way in us by producing a loving obedience that commends the gospel to others, that your church might grow for your glory. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.